Hello, my good friends, and welcome back to another episode of The Informed Catholic. My name is Ned Jabbar. This is going to be episode 165. Episode 165. And for this episode, we're going to continue uh, the uh, Bible study on the Gospel of Mark. Uh, I know I haven't been bringing in every week, but um trying the best I can to do it. Of course, you know, with the demands of work and everything, it's kind of difficult, but um, we're going to stick with it. So uh, before we go any further, please, let's begin with the opening prayer uh, for reading scripture. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, come, O Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit and they shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, you instructed the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by the same Holy Spirit to have right judgment in all things and ever rejoice in his consolation through the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Holy Mary, Mother of God, Queen of the Rosary, pray for us. St. Joseph, guardian of the church and guardian of the Holy Family and all families, pray for us. And we ask for uh, St. Jerome's intercession. We ask for St. Athanasius's inter intercession. And we, um, we ask for St. Ambrose, St. Augustine, and St. John Henry Newman. And we also ask for St. Peter, St. Paul, and St. Mark to pray for us, and St. John Henry Newman. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so we're still going through the Gospel of Mark. And um, the last time, we pretty much, I think, covered uh, the opening part. And we went over the part about the, the part that talks about the messenger, which is, uh, uh, you know, the uh, three verses that were sort of like combined as one Isaiah Exodus and uh, Malachi uh, that talked about uh, the the messenger what I want to do is I want to read the passage which the passages were focused on and then we're going to move on a little bit on the uh, again I think the John we know that about John the Baptist and I want to cover a little bit about the uh, certain words, but let's start with the, the reading the passage in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, behold, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Make his path straight. Hence, John the Baptist appeared in the desert, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. People from the entire country, uh, countryside and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem went out to him. And as they confessed their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan. John was clothed in, in a garment of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food consists of locusts and wild honey and this way the message he proclaimed and this and this was the, this was the message he proclaimed one who is far more powerful than i am is coming after me 
I am not worthy even to stoop down and loosen the straps of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At this time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And as he was coming up out of the water, he beheld the heavens break open and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the desert. He remained there for forty days, which, t which time he was tempted by Satan. He lived there among the wild beasts while the angels ministered to him. Okay. All right. That's the part where we're going to stop here and we're going to start looking at certain passages. Okay. I think the last time we focused on the way and we know that uh, after the title verse, St. Mark quotes scripture. His narration begins with was what was written by the prophet Isaiah. Actually, Mark quotation is a mixture of text taken from Exodus 23, verse 20, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. The text from Exodus 23, verse 20, and Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 are molded together in Mark chapter 1, verse 2, and speak of a plan of God. Uh, addresses someone confidently about a special task and will send a messer ahead of this person. The purpose of the route is to be take is to be taken becomes clear. It becomes clear in the quotation from Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 from a section of the book of Isaiah often called the Deutero Isaiah which is concerned with the end of the Babylonian exile. A voice announced that God prepares a way for his people through the rough terrain of the wilderness between Babylon and Israel so that they can return home unhindered. Valleys will be filled with mount, will be filled and mountains will be leveled. In the way St. Mark in this way St. Mark combines the quotations and it becomes clear that the person addressed by God has to embark upon this route in order to set God's people free. Okay, the text actually um, actually quoted by St. Mark are not, are not at all taken from Isaiah. It's not all Isaiah, nor are they from the prophetic books only. The point here is not textual accuracy, but the fact that this is uh, scripture and therefore the living word of God. The initiative for the gospel, the real beginning of the narration lies with God, who has a plan for the liberation of his people and who has addressed someone to carry out his plan. St. Mark clearly expects his readers to have knowledge of the Old Testament. Careful comparisons with the Old Testament text reveal that St. Mark even enhances the citation a little bit by adding two possessive pronouns, your way, his paths, so that the emphasis falls on the special person to whom God entrusts this important mission of freeing his people. Um, okay, this is an important mission to free the people, to lead the people 
into um, into a new spiritual realm, a new in, a, a, a new a new way, a new path, a new way, a, a new open path of the covenant, the fulfillment of the covenant. The covenant is is being fulfilled. It is moving forward to fulfilling God's plan. You're going for, you're going to now into the covenant of redemption, of complete redemption. So the mess a messenger will be sent ahead of the reader. Okay, and will be sent ahead ahead. And the reader still doesn't know who will come after this that messenger. One word that jumps out of these quotations is way or path. And this is no coincidence. The gospel is all about a way. Someone will embark upon the way designated by God. If the reader wants to understand the good news, he or she should be willing to travel down that road. In fact, the oldest known application for um, the oldest known title for the Christian faith is those belonging to the way. Acts chapter nine, verse two. Now, John the Baptist uh, is a prophet like Elijah. Prepare, uh, uh, prepares this divinely designated way. At the same time, Saint Mark is preparing the reader to travel along this way. The one who is coming after John the Baptist will be uh, uh, will be baptized. And with the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, it's not that Jesus uh, isn't anointed. He is anointed. But this is this the coming down of the Holy Spirit on Jesus. Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was made incarnate by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came over Mary. The Holy Spirit anointed Mary. The Holy Spirit engulfed Mary, overshadowed Mary. And this is basically a sign that was important for John the Baptist. But at the same time, it was important for others to know this, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the word of God. He is the Lamb of God. That's why uh, this was needed. Now, let's continue. The location of, of John the Baptist in the wilderness allows the reader to identify him as the messenger that was spoken of by God. John the Baptist is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Mark chapter 1, verse 3. The kind of preparation he provides involves calling people to repentance. The baptism that John administers is not a sacrament, but one, uh, but a one-time ritual washing in preparation for the coming of that special person whom God will send. The purpose of the baptism of John involves repentance, which literally means a change of mind and, and heart. Okay, uh, a complete, uh, a complete turnaround on life, a complete new way of seeing things and hearing things. It's another stage, uh, I would say, of God's covenant. You, you, we ourselves are letting ourselves, are opening our minds, our hearts back, you know, to see the world differently. Not the way we see it, but the way God wants us to see it. 
the way God want, we want. We're letting God open our eyes, our mind, and our heart. We're just getting ready. You know, we're just, you know, we're, we're letting, we're trusting God. We're trusting in the Holy Spirit. We're trusting in, in God's salvation plan. We're letting him take over. We're letting him put us on the path. And this is, this is important. This is absolutely important because we're not, you know, we're not doing things our way. Repent. The whole message of John the Baptist is to repent, turn away from our sins. And, you know, the, we're, 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 you know, we're, you know, God, we're letting God bring down the mountains to level them, to make the road straight for us, you know, and we're turning away from our selfish, uh, materialistic ways, believing that this is all that there is. This world is all that there is. That's the whole purpose of it. All right. So, okay, let's continue. Okay, the impact of John the Baptist. Okay, the baptism of John, therefore, implies a moral conversion. Okay, the impact of John the Baptist is enormous. The Greek text highlights it with the use of um, this particular uh, Greek uh, construction. All the country of Judea and the people of Jerusalem. Uh, I think it's called the use of chaistic construction all the country of judea and all the people of jerusalem mark chapter 1 verse 5 even though the statement should not be taken literally or else nobody will be left in the land the population the popularity of john the baptist should not be underestimated when many years later and many miles away saint paul proclaims the gospel in asia minor there are several people who only know the baptism of john the baptist Acts chapter 18, verse 25, and 19, verse 3 and 4. For St. Luke, describing in the Acts of the Apostles the early years of the church and those belonging to the way, the baptism of John the Baptist is fixed reference point. Acts chapter 10, verse 37, and Acts chapter 13 uh, to 24. The appearance of John the Baptist is special and serves a purpose. Mark expects the reader to be acquainted with the prophet Elijah, okay, uh, who, who wore a hairy garment with a leather belt. Um, he, uh, he, King uh, Haziah, said to him, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, he wore a garment of hair cloth with a belt of, of leather about his loins. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishapite. This was Second Kings chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. The detailed description of John's clothing underscores the fact that he is a prophet like Elijah, the reader can now understand even better that the in initiator of the words and actions of John the Baptist, uh, Baptist is God. John the Baptist fulfills the prophetic word of God in these texts. All right, let's continue. <clears throat> According to the prophet Malachi, God will send the prophet Elijah to prepare for the day of the Lord. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, before the, the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, 
and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Least I come and strike the land with a curse. Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 and 6. Through the reference references to Elijah, the reader understands that the coming of the the Lord coincides with the one who is to come. It becomes clear that a new era is dawning. This makes the call of repentance all the more urgent. The words and actions of John the Baptist, like the return of Elijah, are aimed at a conversion of heart as a preparation for his coming. Therefore, the reader now gets personally involved. I want to stop here and say, I think a lot of people at that time were expecting the Messiah to come in their day. They were just sensing that something was, was about to change because, you know, a lot of people were aware of the, of the prophecies of Daniel. They were aware of the, of, of the events they were, aware, they were aware of the events of scripture, of the events with the Roman Empire, the changes that were taking place, that things were just not, that things were just changing. They were living in a changing time. And I think they were sensing, expecting and hoping that the Messiah will come during their day. And it's not that I think people are are expecting to be what you call doomsday forecasters, doomsday expectors. I think they just knew that their world was changing. I mean, remember Jesus himself used to challenge the Pharisees. You look up and you see the sky and the clouds and you say what the weather is going to be like. And then he tells them, how is it that you cannot uh, read the signs of the times? And I think that's exactly what was happening. People, some people were, were looking at the signs of their times, the changes that were taking place. And it may not have been just Jews. It may have been Romans and Greeks. They just sensed that the world was changing, that something fantastic was about to happen, that their world was about to go through a shift a change and I think it had a lot to do with the coming of our Lord, um, the birth of our Lord, that the the Magi, men like the Magi, the 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 wise men knew they saw the signs of the times, they knew that things were changing. And and I think in many cases that there were many other people that were expecting that there may have been other what you call private revelations, not public revelations like what we see in the prophets, what was in scripture, but there may have been many private revelations that went on during those days that never made it into scripture that were probably um, like maybe even rabbis who had private revelations and, and made it, you know, uh, preached and talked about the changes in the times. So I I think that was it. I think we can say that because I think we can we can 
all agree, like the way we have private revelations of privates of, of saints who had private revelations, I think we can expect the same thing with the revelations uh, that were around that time that was very similar to our day, that there were probably many private revelations. There were also many of the sages, poetry of rabbis that um, were very popular back then. And they were very popular among among many uh many of, of the of the Jews. There were even like uh apocryphal readings, writings that were very popular among the people that circulated. Not necessarily that they were established revelation, but they were popular among the people nevertheless. And many of them also kind of uh, there was also truth in them. They just never made it into the official canon. You know, like the way Catholics have, um, uh, we hold on to certain books that Protestants don't hold on to, but yet uh, it's not, it's not, it's, it's accessible to many Protestants. They refer to them as Apocrypha. And some of these books are still popular among the Jews this very day. Like, Think about it. The Jews celebrate Hanukkah, and yet um, the Book of Maccabees is not a pop, 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 um, part of their official canon, but it is official canon among Catholics and Orthodox. So you see, many of these uh, literatures uh, circulated in those days, uh, just before Jesus and around the time of Jesus. So and, it, and I think it's the Holy Spirit who makes certain literature uh, you know, uh, popular and come to the forefront of people's uh, spiritual uh, hunger to know if the Messiah is coming. I th you know, if, if literature, in my opinion, certain subject matter, certain things are, are very big in people's conscience and desire to know the truth. The Holy Spirit will use these circulated things, circulated scriptures or, or uh, literature to, to be part of people's spiritual conscience. And I'm, and I'm using it very cautiously, the word conscious. I'm not, I don't want to use it like a new age person. I'm just saying that God puts the desire in our hearts to want to know the truth. And God will put certain uh, literature, spiritual literature, uh, to awaken people's uh, conscience to the coming of the Messiah. Back then, as well as now, to, 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 to know that things are happening. And I think, you know, when God puts you on a spiritual quest to seek the truth, he will put the literature in front of you, especially like, you know, how we say it's approved private revelation today. It's the same thing. All right, let's continue. Uh, the Herald of John the Baptist is reported, um, uh, re reported to direct speech containing elements that give further information about the special person who has been called by God to carry out a mission. 
This person is mightier, having strength that supersedes the human strength of the Baptist. Moreover, John the Baptist will not remove his sandals. This is a part I think is very important. This part where John says, I am not worthy to, rem to remove his sandal straps, to, you know, to hold on to his sandals. Traditionally, removing the other person's sandals indicates the greater importance of the coming one and explains why John the Baptist humbles himself before this person. Here too, St. Mark counts on the reader to be familiar with the Old Testament texts and customs. In order to make his own position clear to all the people, the Baptist refers to a special law, a well-known custom in Israel, the um, Leveret, Leveret, Leveret law, which involves the removal of sandals as the official confirmation. Okay, hold on. Okay, the Leveret, Leverite law, the biblical institution whereby a man must marry the widow of his childless brother in order to maintain the brother's line. Okay. Uh, okay. It's a custom among the ancient Hebrews and other people by which a man may be obliged to marry his brother's widow. Okay. Leverite marriage. Okay. It's from the Latin word. Lever, brother-in-law. Okay, interesting. Now let's go here to Wikipedia. All right. It's not exactly, I know Wikipedia is not exactly the most popular thing, but it helps a little bit here. Leverite marriage, a type of marriage in which the brother of a deceased man is obliged to marry his brother's widow. Leverite marriage has been practiced by societies with strong clan structure in which um, the Agamemnon's uh, marriage, okay, marriage outside the clan is forbidden. Okay, okay. So, uh, forbidden. It has been known in many societies around the world. Okay. So, this is also, I think, uh, it was a custom among certain Muslims, um, um, Muslim people. I think among Muslims, this was this was practiced. It's this. This is a custom. I think that precedes. Uh, the law of Moses, because we know this for a fact in the Old Testament, uh, in Genesis, among Jacob's sons, Jacob's sons, when one of his sons passed away uh, and left no children, his one of his brother, one of his other sons, the, a brother, had to step in in order to father children in his brother's place. In a sense, he has to marry the woman, obviously, take her as his wife. He can, I think he can then therefore have another wife. Obviously, I think that's, uh, it can be, it's a custom uh, permitted it. So in a sense, the children he fathers with his, bro with his brother's widow are not his, are going to be his, his, his dead brothers. Um, so that his brother's, uh, line can continue in a sense he's a surrogate husband he's a surrogate father he they will be legally they will be legally under his brothers although he physically uh fathered uh fathered them 
So in a sense, yeah, so that they can continue their inheritance. This is a custom, I think, that even Muslims and some Muslim uh, uh, cultures was permitted. It was permitted. I think uh, in my father's family, uh, my grandmother, she was married to my grandfather's brother and he died. And then he, um, I know that she, he did leave, he did have, um, uh, he did leave a son, my uncle Sharif, but he, my grandfather decided to step in and marry her, uh, you know, marry her, um, you know, I guess to protect, mostly it wasn't just to father children, but it was to protect uh, the inheritance. It was more for financial and material than anything else. And that's exactly what you see in the Old Testament here. So what John is doing, remember, John is the son of Zechariah, but John is a legitimate descendant of Aaron. The high priesthood should be his. But his family is not occupying the high priesthood anymore because that was a coup. This goes back to the time of the Maccabees where the coup took place, where it's sort of like the legitimate sons of Aaron because sons of Aaron, there was a lot of apostasy, a lot of heresy. And so another Levite family took over. And remember, eventually the Maccabees, the Hasmonean dynasty took over and they were... Uh, Levites and they themselves, uh, they themselves wind up becoming um, sort of dictators. They dominated. They began the first, they were the first family, I think, if I'm correct, that dominated the priesthood and also were sort of kings. So they were high priest and king rulers. This continued until the Herodian family came in and uh, so the high priesthood became a political office, a political office, uh, uh, and then sort of like the Herods, the Herods, uh, he married into the Maccabean family, the Hasmonean dynasty, and sort of like to legitimize their, their Jewishness because they were converts. They were from Edomian descent. It's a lot of politics. It gets very confusing, but let me let me lay it down very simply john the baptist is a direct descendant of aaron and john the baptist when jesus appeared on the scene to be baptized was renouncing the high priestly office remember john's mother elizabeth and mary were cousins were cousins so mary was not just a descendant of David, she had Aaronic blood, the blood of Aaron running through her. So in many ways, when John stepped aside, Jesus, who's the son of Mary, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, but also she has the blood of David in her and the blood of Aaron in her. So she passed down to her son, Jesus, both the high priest office and the and also the royal blood of David. Which makes when so John the Baptist 
passes uh, passes the, the the scepter or the office of the high priesthood to Jesus, and John steps off the scene with no legitimate heir of his own. You see what I'm saying there? John the Baptist uh, decides not to leave, to, to, to leave this world with no legitimate heir to take to inherit the office of priesthood. He must increase while I decrease. You see? So therefore, the line of the high priesthood is Jesus. And the, the, the throne of David belongs to Jesus. And this is this is this is where we're this is where we where we find ourselves here. Okay, so um now we're into this part here about the ancient uh custom. Uh this coming this this particular thing explains why John humbles himself before his before this person, the person of Jesus. Here, too, St. Mark counts on the reader to be familiar with the Old Testament texts and customs in order to make his own position clear to all the people. The Baptist refers to a special law, a well-known custom in Israel, the Leverite law, which involves the removal of sandals as the official confirmation. In ancient Israel, when a man died without leaving any offspring or his next of kin, was bound to marry the widow and raise a family for the deceased so that his name, his brother's name would not be blotted out in Israel and would be perpetuated in, in his, in his, uh, piece of the promised land, the inheritance. This provision might ensure that the promised land would never fall into the foreign hands. If the nearest of kin refused to marry the widow, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in in the presence of the elders and pull the sandals off his foot and spit in his face and she shall answer and say so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 9 later the Sadducees who do not believe in the resurrection and life after death try to snare Jesus in words by applying this law in an unbelieving way Mark chapter 12, verse 18, 27. We'll get to that in the future. A beautiful application of the Leverite law is found in the book of Ruth. Boaz fulfills the Leverite law in marrying Ruth, the widow of Machalim, son of Emelech of Bethlehem. Familiar name, isn't it? Because it is the Bethlehem. Contracting this marriage poses problems. However, since Boaz is not next of kin, the nearest relative is keen on getting the property that rightfully belonged to Magdalene, but he's not keen on marrying Ruth. Boaz knows how to deal with the situation. In the course of this story, the ancient Israelite custom is explained. Now, this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandals and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. Ruth chapter 4, verse 7. 
Boaz foresaw that the other contender did not want to marry Ruth in order to raise descendants for the deceased. Macklin, uh, the Macklin, which was Naomi's dead son. Ruth was the daughter-in-law of Naomi and um, Macklin was Naomi's um, deceased son. So the next of kin conceded his right by untying the thong of his sandals and handing the sandals to Boaz. John the Baptist refers to this ancient Israelite custom by saying that he is not worthy to untie the sandals of the one to come. John announces this special person as the rightful bridegroom of the bride who is Israel. So John is passing. I, I, I truly believe this is not just my, I think others can agree. If John is the true heir of Aaron and the high priesthood, then John should be the high priesthood, not Caiaphas or Annas, because he is a true descendant of Aaron. So, Jesus, who seemed, who, who through some, how his mother's, uh, his mother is cousins to Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is a daughter of Aaron, like Zechariah is, is a son of Aaron. And so, somehow, through some kind of marriage, it seems, that rightful, true bloodline passed into Mary. And Mary also has a rightful bloodline of David. So Jesus is the rightful heir to the high priesthood and to the office, to the position of king. He's priest and king now. And therefore, because of this, he's also, he, he fulfills the office of priest, king, and prophet. All three um, offices, these titles are now his, and he is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, prophet, priest, king. It's all his. And I believe with, with all honesty, this is what John was doing. That's why John was said, I, he must increase while I decrease. And this, this is, this why it makes Jesus perfect. This is what makes Jesus perfect for all three because all of it is his which was what the father wanted uh so john the baptist refers to the ancient israelite custom uh by saying that he is not worthy to untie the sandals the one to come john announces this special person as the rightful bridegroom of the bride who is israel the last element in john's proclamation is the announcement of the baptism with the holy spirit by the one to come this statement is personally addressed to the to the people. St. Mark speaks of the baptism with water in the past tense about the baptism with the Holy Spirit in the future tense. This builds expectation in the reader of the one to come. The baptism of John the Baptist has already been reported, so now attention is focused on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Water doesn't transform a person, but the Holy Spirit does. Water affects a person superficially and calls for conversion, but the Holy Spirit penetrates the heart of a person, enables the change of heart. The early reader of St. Mark would not be completely unfamiliar with such a concept as a baptism in the Holy Spirit because the prophet Ezekiel foretold this promise in the Old Testament 
I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you. A new spirit I will put within you. And I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to observe my ordinances. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 to 27. Now, I want to stop here. This part here um, gets my attention. I will put... Um, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will take out of you your flesh the heart of stone and give you the heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to observe my ordinances. The heart of flesh, I, I can't help but think that this refers, this is pointing to the incarnation of our Lord and refers also in some way to the Eucharist. The Eucharist, the body and blood and soul divinity of our Lord, because we truly believe that it is truly Jesus we receive in the sacrament. So the heart of flesh, just I don't know, just for some reason, I will take the stone out and give you the heart of flesh. Now, flesh is flesh, right? Jesus, Jesus, you know, the flesh alone is of no avail. He said that in John's gospel, but but we're talking about the incarnation, the fact that the word of God, the word of God became flesh. And the fact that our Lord told us that this is his body and the, and the wine is his blood is something I think that is very important for us that we have to, uh, we have to really focus on this part. I think we truly do. We have to really uh, go into it and study it a little bit more because there's so much here that is important for us to understand, to really comprehend. Mark's gospel may be the shortest gospel, but as you can see, it's carefully written out because it is Peter's gospel and Peter knew our Lord. Okay, in reference to the Holy Spirit in Mark's gospel is a rare. It occurs only here in Mark chapter 3, verse 29. Again, in Mark chapter 13, verse 11, the Holy Spirit is the presence of God working through the words and actions of the one to come. It is thus becomes clear that not just the divine name names are taken one by one to, to come, but that he also takes on the divine functions such as give, giving of the Holy Spirit. All right, so uh, we're going to end it here because I think I made it long enough. Uh, but it's really, I think we're getting it. We're moving ahead, finally. We're moving a little fast. And I will try to go over things just a little bit more because I know that that's important because we really shouldn't rush into things without really studying them. And I also want to check out other commentaries on the same passage because I want to focus a lot on this. So let's end it with a closing prayer uh, after reading scripture in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let me not, O Lord, be puffed up with worldly wisdom which passes away. Grant me that love which never abates, that I may come not to choose to know anything but Jesus Christ and him crucified. I pray you, loving Jesus, that as you have graciously given me to drink in with delight the words of your knowledge, 
so you would mercifully grant me to attain one day to you the fountain of all wisdom and to appear forever before your face. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.